Well, welcome back to Bull City Coordinators. Uh, this is Ben, and I've got another guest going back to the uh, late 90s era of Duke football. This is more for the older fans out there, but for the younger folks, I hope you enjoy this interview. I think it's going to be a very good one. Uh, we have a wonderful guest who was a star linebacker at Duke, wore number 45, along with Ryan Stallmeyer, who wore number 44, made an outstanding linebacker core. We have Todd DeLamelier. Thank you, Todd, for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for, for doing this shoot. It's just cool to think back to those days. At least some of it is. <laughs> we'll get into that here soon enough. Uh, but like I told you, when I was doing my research for this, uh, I uh, was reminded that you were a firefighter uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, in 2007, uh, when one of the worst fires uh, in certainly uh, South Carolina history and uh, in the country's history as far as the loss of life for firefighters since 9-11, the Charleston yep. Sofa Superstore fire, <clears throat> which um, took the lives, I believe, of nine people, another 18 or so injured. Uh, what was that like for you uh, as far as the aftermath of that fire and just trying to deal with the loss of life and injuries to friends and, and co-workers? Um, it was just, I mean, it was really surreal. Like, it was like this, uh, when you think of, like, I remember going, so when I first got in the fire department, I went with my wife, because it was out of, kind of out of nowhere. Now my my uh, grandpa on my mom's side was a fire chief, so I had that, but I never really thought, yeah, maybe I'd be a fireman. But then when football kind of didn't really work out, I'm like, Man, I don't, I, I could not do the corporate thing. And I remember going to see the movie Ladder 49 with my wife, and she was my fiance at the time. And we came out, and she was crying like, "Well, oh, this is, you know, this is scary." And I remember being like, "Mindy, you know, with the, with the safety things we do, this, something like this would never, it wouldn't happen. It's very, very unlikely it would happen." And I always think of that when once that happened, I was like, "Man, I can't," you know, you're just in disbelief. Um, and then just picking up from there, you, you know, a lot of times you're kind of like, man, I, it so easily could have been me because it was all, you know, we were trained a certain way. We would have done the same tactics. Didn't matter who was there. We were kind of interchangeable parts when it came to how we would have tactically fought that fire. And it was all wrong, to be honest with you, in hindsight. But at the time, you know, you had a lot of survivor guilt for a while. We were like, man, why, why wasn't I there? Why wasn't I shift or, you know, whatever. So, I mean, that's, that's a difficult thing to deal with. Um, and then after that, we dealt with an awful lot of change in the department, and, and it was all difficult. I mean, it was a, they still struggle with it. And to be honest, I left the department uh, shoot probably six, seven years after the Sofa Superstore, and I would say there's maybe ten percent of the fire department left um, that was there previous to the fire because it was just there was all the change and just it was really difficult to deal with. Um, well, you, uh, it's just you mentioned right. that you were. You have, you know, you talked about survivor's guilt, but you were off duty yeah. that night, weren't you? I was, yeah. I was off duty, and I ended up, it was kind of like before, it was a little bit before, like, cell phones were to the, you're getting real-time information, where, you know, I had a buddy call me on an old flip phone that was on duty, like, hey, we got a fire at the Sofa Superstore, so it's going to be pretty bad, it looks like. And I kind of was like, okay, kind of trying to pay attention to it. And then once you learn how bad it was, and everybody was going there. I ended up going down to my station downtown because they were on, they were the only station that stayed on the peninsula. There were two engines that stayed on the peninsula, 
and really when I think back of it, what's really difficult is you don't think about it, but like when 9-11 happened, somebody backfilled those stations, like for, and you tried to respond to other calls. So once we knew it was bad and there were guys missing, you still had to be, you were on duty still and you still had to respond to calls. So I went down to my station and ran a couple calls with them and, and tried to help out where they were undermanned. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, when, I, when I think back to it, it was just a, just a crazy time where the whole time you're going, I don't know if this is this even real. It was just awful because I was, this is a small department too. Charleston's a little bigger city now, but you go back 20, you know, now that's what, it was, uh, shoot, that's almost 15 years ago. That was before was the big city. bridge had been, they redid the bridge, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was a small city and I knew everybody, every single one of those guys I've worked with at least a little bit and was friendly with, you know, was friends with a few of them where I would hang out with them. So it was, it wasn't like, you know, losing an, an acquaintance, it was losing a friend. It was really, it was difficult. Now I had read that you tried, If correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory is that store was in West Ashley. Is that right? Yes. And yeah. that, that on a good day is a traffic nightmare. I remember, yeah. I mean, my grandparents yeah. used to, my maternal grandparents used to live out that way, but uh, that you you actually tried to get out there, but the interstate was no, blocked down. Well, I actually didn't. I ended up calling, so I called back down to the station. I'm like, I'm going to head down there. And um, the captain that was there was like, you know what, come here. You're, you're not going to do any good there. You're going to have a hard time even getting over the bridge. Come here because we don't have anybody. So I ended up going downtown instead. Um, like I said, it was, it was a different time where, you know, you would have, you're so used now to getting information immediately. It was like we were getting bits and pieces. You know, and, um, but yeah, I ended up going downtown just because I don't, I don't think I would have even got close, um, especially when the fire was going on. How long did it take you all to get back to a sense of normalcy in your day-to-day operations, or did you just have the, just this kind of next man up mentality, put it behind you like a football play and just go forward? Um, I mean, you did, but it also, I mean, a year later, it ended up being, there were a lot of errors made, and everybody can armchair quarterback something and say, Oh, this is what I would have done. So obviously it's, it's, it's one of those things you're taught a certain way. And that's, that's how you, that's how you approach that fire. But a year later it was, we were pretty much a cautionary tale for the rest of the fire service of what not to do. So we kind of had to unlearn our tactics. We had tactics that were very effective for, you know, it's an old city where we saved an awful lot of property going in with what we call a booster line. It's a really a small diameter hose that you could deploy really quickly. We would go downtown and save, save structures all the time where you, because we got to it really quickly to the scene of the fire where that wasn't the right tactic for a, a different setting. So um, it was tough because I would say the normalcy never really came back for a lot of guys, which is why we had a ton of turnover. A lot of guys left um, because we kind of went the opposite, which which is... You know, as I understand that we went from being fairly reckless and, and very aggressive to being unbelievably conservative, and there was no middle ground. So it was really it was a real struggle for for the guys that were there because you learned a whole a whole new way, and now they took, they, they put you in a to, you know totally different um, mindset. So you asked about normalcy; it never really never really became normal after that. Well, and for those of the listeners who are not familiar with Charleston, South Carolina, uh, obviously downtown is very historic. Buildings can only get so high. They're very restrictive in any sort of changes you can make to any buildings. But out in West Ashley, it's much more of a traditional suburb. And 
the, every all the growth is different. I mean, everything out there is is significantly um, different than you have in downtown Charleston. The architecture, yeah. the layout, there's nothing really that yeah. overlaps. No, not at all. Really, it's very, it's very much like there's a very in Charleston. I, I mean, most cities have it to some extent, but the Charleston Peninsula, like the infrastructure, you would not to get into real detailed stuff on firefighting, but you would go hook up to a hydrant in West Ashley and have 100 pounds of pressure. You go downtown, you have 30 pounds of pressure where you're like, you charge two lines and you're out of water. So it was like one of those, it was a very, um, very unique department to be in. Well, well, and around that time, from what I read, you were actually trying to get back into professional football with the uh, All-American yeah. Football League. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Well, Tell us a little bit about, I remember that league when it was coming around, but just tell us a little bit about what it was supposed to be and what your involvement and tryout consisted of. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was kind of one of those things that, it actually made sense because, so long story short of the whole premise of that league was it was going to be kind of tailored to the college football fan. And so, like, I ended up getting drafted on the team in Arkansas, even though I'm an Arkansas guy. But most of that roster were guys that played that, that era for Arkansas or the SEC teams in that area. So, like, Clay Sterner was a drafted quarterback. And they're all guys that have pro experience. So, you know, it's uh, you get to the level, like I got, you know, I signed as a free agent with the Colts. And you get to that level, and you don't make it. You have a lot of regret. Like, man, I, I, I would have I would have handled myself differently in camp. I would have been more of a jerk, to be honest with you. I would have been much more out for me during camp. You know, it's, it's, it's really – kind of hard to explain because you've never been cut from anything in your life get the NFL as a free agent your chances you got a really slim chance of making it so anybody like me it's a hard pill to swallow to think that it's over so when that, when that league came around it, it seemed like it had a good concept they were going to actually pay a pretty decent wage and when I went to the tryout I'm like oh, I'll go check this out I went to a tryout in the, in the Citrus Bowl and there were tons of guys that I played against in the ACC that were good players. I'm like, oh man, this this league is going to be no joke. It's going to be pretty damn good. So that's that's why I got involved with that. Now the league unfortunately folded. It never got a product on the field. But yeah. you you talked about you know that didn't pan out. You talked about your time with the Colts, but you had a shoulder injury, didn't you? Uh, that impacted yeah, your your yeah, football got, tryout. Yeah, I got hurt. Yeah, I got hurt. Honestly, I got hurt in the camp in Indianapolis, and I just. Uh, kind of foolish how I, how I handled it. I ended up not taking an extra physical. And what's crazy is in hindsight, you hear all these stories I've taken. I got hurt in, I think it was the second or third preseason game. And I could barely lift my arm to get in a Toradol shot, like, right after the game. By the next day, I practiced. And I'm like, dang, this thing feels pretty good. Like, And five years later, you read about Toradol, it's like a mask. It's crazy. It's a mask to the point where I was playing with a shoulder that was kind of on, I was on my last leg with it without really knowing it. So long story short, I got cut by, by them. I made it through NFL Europe, and to be honest, I, I almost fudged the physical a little bit by the skin of my teeth. I, I, I passed the physical, <laughs> and then I had to make it a team. Like, I, I mean, I used, a, I used like a, you know, a thing to kind of mobilize your shoulder all through camp, and it was brutal because we hit a ton during camp. Most of ever hit my life was NFL Europe camp, and like, grace of God, I made it through. And I'm making the roster, and then it, it fell apart. First game, I hurt my shoulder again pretty bad. And then it was like there was no, no coming back from my knee that surgery. So you you, uh, so you had uh, you had been in the preseason with the Colts. 
you played yeah. in NFL Europe. Did you actually play mm-hmm. game time, or was it preseason with NFL Europe? NFL Europe, no, it was game time. It was the first first game of the year. Um, so I ended up making making the final, you know, like the roster and going over to Europe. And then I got hurt the first game, and then that was it. That was the last play I ever played in football was dislocating my shoulder on a, like a special teams play, you know, very mundane play, and I, uh, that was it. That was the end. So the whole point was that All-American League, it was kind of like once I got healthy again, and I was like, man, I'm, and I kind of figured out how to train myself. I was faster. I was stronger. And I just had a bad taste in my mouth about football. If I had some control to do something about it, I was like, man, I'm going to try and play again. And that's, that's why I gave it a shot with the, with the All-American League. But that's, I mean, that's everybody's story of football. Very seldom does it end on your terms. You know, they, they pretty much tell you, like, hey, you got to stop playing because you're no good anymore or you're injured. Right. So when that uh, when that ends and you've been trying to get back into football, what's your mindset? What do you do? Where do you go from there? I mean, it was still, it was just kind of like, well, it, it, it kind of finally got to the point where you're like, well, it's just not in the cards for me. I did everything I could possibly do. And what's crazy is that when that when that All-American League folded before it got off the ground, you know, you're pissed off for a little while, and then you're like, you know what, maybe it's just it's just not meant to be for me, and it gives you a little bit of peace to be like, I did everything I possibly could do to, to give football a shot. I didn't I didn't hang it up early and then have regrets. So in hindsight, like, you know, I just moved on with my life after that in terms of I stayed in the fire department. And, and just uh, put football in the rear view. But like I said, it was, it was a bitter pill, but it was also, that gave me a little peace that I did all I could. So let's go way back in time a little bit. Uh, rumor is your dad was a pretty good football player. Is that true or false? Yeah, he was okay. He was okay. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us who your dad. I don't remember. But. Yeah. <laughs> tell us who your dad was and uh, a little bit about his career in football. Yeah, well, he, so my dad played for Golden uh, Browns, so his, his big thing was right his first year in the league, he blocked on the electric company. He was a right guard, started for the electric company, when O.J. Simpson ran for 2,000 yards in 14 games, which to me, that's, that's one of those records. I don't know if that's ever going to be broken. Um, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, but played in Buffalo for, what, he played, he played seven years in Buffalo. The year I was born, he got traded to Cleveland. He played five years there, and then he went back to Buffalo his last year. So I ended up with 13 years in the NFL, and then it was crazy. A lot of people don't even really know about it. Um, when I was shoot, seventh, eighth grade, he was a high school coach, and he had a couple restaurants. Long story short, he was a victim of a white-collar crime. He got swindled, lost all his money. And not like he crushed it in the NFL money-wise, but he was comfortable. And he lost all his money, and he, had, he played arena ball when he was 41 years old for the Charlotte Rage which was pretty crazy to see um, as a, you know, a 13 year old kid watching him play. I think he was 41 or 42, a guy who was, uh, you know, one of the best to ever play the game right guard in the NFL, having to kind of stay in his pride, playing the arena league, having to play both ways, playing on special teams for 500 bucks a game was pretty, pretty amazing to, to witness. So, well, it's crazy when you think of my dad's career. That's the part I remember. I was like, I remember when he played for the Charlotte Rage. <laughs> and everybody'd be like, "What are you talking about? He only played for the Rage." But uh, yeah, pretty pretty crazy. So he played football. You play football. Was it difficult yeah. for you? Challenging for you? Having uh, any sort of expectations of what you were supposed to do as a 
the son of a pro football hall of famer? Um, not really. Cause I mean, you know, it's kind of, I didn't have the attributes my dad in terms of size. I was always undersized. Uh, when the fastest guy, uh, definitely one of the biggest guy. Um, so it's kind of, you know, once it's, it's tough. If you don't have those certain metrics, you know, if you're not six three, two fifty, you know, playing a certain position, you know, linebacker, not as much now, but when I was playing, if you were going to the NFL, you should have been, they like you six one, six two. I was like five eleven. Um, so I never felt like there was any pressure to measure up to something like that. Um, and he never put any pressure on me. So from that standpoint, it was, it was always comfortable. I played because I wanted to play. He never wanted. He honestly didn't even, he didn't let me play till seventh grade. And I was a baseball player. I was probably better at that point at baseball anyway. And he was like, shoot, I don't care. He didn't care if I played football. It was, <laughs> well, what, it was long and short of it. What took you into football then? I just liked it. He, he was a high school coach. And um, he was like, hey, if you want to try and play it, let's play. You can play, you know, no problem. Seventh grade, I started. And I liked it. You know, it was fun. And definitely football, the camaraderie of football is different than other sports, in my opinion. I, when he ended up coaching at Liberty, I went to a school called ECU last. You probably heard of it, actually. Yeah, yep. I'm very familiar with it, yeah. And at that, okay. At that point, they were a really good program. And once I got into high school and I went to glass, I was like, holy cow, there'd be you know, 10, 12,000 people at a game routinely. And if you played a big one bigger than that, it was a big deal. You know, it was just an awesome atmosphere. And I made friends for life playing football. But I did a baseball too, but I think it's when there's a lot of physical demands put on somebody in a sport and you really have to rely on the guy next to you, you, you form a bond. You don't really form in other sports. So, uh, as we mentioned before we started, uh, I did want to ask you about your dad's time at Liberty. Primarily, I'm because I moved to Roanoke in 2008, which is about an hour uh, south of, yeah. of there. Where did you, you didn't go to high school there, though, did you? No, I'm from South Carolina. I'm okay. from the upstate. Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I went to school, uh, I went to college, college at Charleston, then went to law school okay. at, at W&L in Lexington, started working in Roanoke, right. and when I would first start going up to court hearings and stuff in Liberty uh, or in uh, Lynchburg, uh, it was kind of growing, kind of changing, but over the last 12-plus yeah. years, I mean, it has really gone drastically into a very big, very college sprawlish growth yeah. and it's a very very different place i'm just curious what it was like when you were there i mean it was like uh put it this way sam ritigliano was the head coach at liberty um when my dad went there so he had coached my my dad with the browns and he had been i think he was nfl coach of the year one year so it was kind of like you know it seemed like it was the last stop on his coaching career um and um I remember there was an article, like when my dad got the job there, I'm like, Liberty, where the heck's Liberty? I was, you know, 14 years old. <laughs> and um, there was an article in USA Today of Sam Ritigliano and Jerry Falwell going by, you know, I think they said by 2020 or something, we were going to be playing Notre Dame on national television. And you go, yeah, right, give me a break. And then this year you go, dang, they're ranked, they're beating teams. They're, you know, it's pretty amazing that you look back at that, you're like, man, that was not far-fetched. But at the time, it was. It was crazy. Like, you're like, this is ridiculous. This is like, you know, really low-level football. And it was, it really, uh, like you said, I mean, you go there now, it's a different place. Oh, yeah, and there's always something being built. Every time I drive anywhere yeah. near Lynch, Lynchburg, you can see something being built. 
Well, uh, enough about the peculiarities of uh, Central Virginia and getting into Southwest Virginia. Uh, why don't we turn to what I think everybody's been waiting for us to talk about and get into how you came to be a Blue Devil, and also it looked like your father uh, came with you and joined the coaching staff. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it actually was kind of reversed. So Duke was recruiting me uh, while I was in Li- while my dad was in Liberty. I was a junior, and Chris Combs was at uh, Patrick or not a Patrick, yeah Patrick Henry. Good Rono uh, guy, love it. And, I love it. Yeah, yeah, Rono guy. So I played against Chris, and Chris went to Duke. And they were, they were still actively recruiting me. Long story short, my dad took the job as the O-line coach at Duke my junior year of high school. And when I got down here, they they were I was already actively getting recruited by them, but they offered me pretty quick because I was on campus all the time. And <laughs> I really thought we were going to be great. Just coming off, you know, 94, they had a great year. 95, they, they were, I think they were 3-8, and eight, but it was, they were losing like nail biters. And then when I knew Combs went there, I was like, man, they're going to be pretty good. Um it kind of was a no-brainer to me. Uh, and if the bonus was being able, me and my dad are real close, his bonus to be able to go where he already was. So that's kind of how I ended up. And then the, kind of the cherry on top, I was recruited as a fullback, uh, believe it or not, in most other places like Virginia, Virginia Tech. I um, was getting on in Michigan, Penn State, a lot of schools were recruiting me as a fullback. Uh, but then at Duke, they said I was going to play both. I was going to play uh, baseball, too, because I was getting recruited to uh, other schools for baseball. Clemson and uh, UVA recruited me for baseball. And when Duke was kind of, they kind of embraced the idea of me playing both. Because Adam Geist was actually there. I don't know if you remember that name, but he played receiver for us and played baseball. Um, when they said I could do both, that was kind of the cherry on top. Um, but then being a moot point, I ended up getting baseball anyway. So you you come to Duke. Who was recruiting you there? Which position coach or? or? So it would have been, uh, God, it would have been tr- Coach Trot, I guess. Bob Trot would have been my recruiter. But it was a unique situation because I was already, I was already on campus all the time. So I was like, you know, by the time I was offered, I was already here talking. You know, I would watch practice and be in the weight room sometimes, just watching everything. So I never, really, never even got to that point because I, I committed really early. Uh, I was still shoot as soon as they could. They offered me uh, in the spring of my junior year. I committed pretty much right away, and, and then that was it. And for the listeners out there, Bob Trot was the defensive coordinator then. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, he was DB coach and uh, defensive coordinator. Now, shoot, he's been all over the place uh, since. So I think he's uh, he was at James Madison, and uh, I can't remember. I uh, might have gone to East Carolina. I can't remember. He's been he has been around the around the East Coast coaching. That is the peril of being a uh, a football coach. Uh, it's never an easy yeah. time, and you've got to be ready to get up and move at a moment's notice. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. what year did you actually come to Durham? So, I moved to Durham in 95, I think, yeah, beginning of 96. And then I was a freshman in 97. So, I played uh, my junior year of baseball and my, my senior year at Riverside High School in Durham. Now, so you were on the last two Goldsmith teams, is that correct? Yes, yeah, red shirt. So, I played my, 97, I actually played two games on special teams. And then luckily, I just kept my red shirt because I wasn't going to play very much. And then the next year, I started uh, started at linebacker for his last team. It would have been '98. During those two years, Duke went from two and nine to four and seven. And that '98 squad, looking back on it, as I've done as part of these interviews, 
that team was very close to getting to six wins and getting to a bowl. I think it was about maybe seven or eight points away from getting to six wins. And then Goldsmith is let go. I just want to ask you kind of what were your thoughts about at the time, how that season ended and the decision being made for a coaching change and have those thoughts changed at all over the past 20 plus years? Oh, they, I mean, they definitely changed it. But at the time, I thought, oh, maybe if we get a, a coach with a little more of an um, offensive mindset, like where we, we could do some more offensive. Yeah, to me, I was like, man, we really had some weapons. We, you and I were talking about this earlier. Um, I thought going into 99, we were going to be 8-3, and three, and it would be a disappointment to me. I really thought Florida State was the one team on the schedule that, you know, to be honest, it would have been taken a miracle to beat those guys right. at that point. Right, right. But, other than that, you know, other than that, I was like, man, I thought we were going to be great. Um, and then in hindsight, I said this to you earlier, I think if we had kept Goldsmith, we would have been full eligible the next year. It was just, uh, to be honest, I don't think Frank was ready. He was never a coordinator. Uh, he was just a position coach at Florida. I think he was uh, over his head when he came to Duke. And, um, you know, our offense really struggled. To where even in 99, if you look at the 99 team, we lost a couple overtime games. Uh, lost a nail, bite, nail biter to Georgia Tech, where we're three and eight, but you win those three, you're six and five. Um, so in hindsight, I, I think it was a mistake to, to let Goldsmith go. Actually, I've, I've come around to that determination as well, and yeah. I also I also felt that Frank's and I'm not trying to knock the guy because it's it's I mean it's been a long time. There's no point in in beating sure. up on him, right? But. I think he was certainly the wrong guy at the wrong time for the reason that you just mentioned. He was like 38 years old. He'd never. I'll be real honest with you. I don't have any problem telling you how I feel about Carl Frank. He was not a good person. He put those to me. Other guys probably are not going to say this, but I I, I would have no problem saying it. I I think he really put the program in a hole from from the standpoint of he was not a good character guy. And that you know eventually you hire a guy like that you know eventually you pay for it and duke in my opinion paid for it for 10 years i mean it took a long time to get back to a guy like tuckcliffe who you go watch tuckcliffe's uh practice and it's like those those kids are like his grandkids like they they don't want to disappoint him where frank it was like he was a very sarcastic guy beat guys down all the time where you're like man this guy it's like he didn't like it it was really a, it was very very strange dynamic i've never been around a guy like that and when he came in you're like oh boy you, you want you you're, you're really trying your best to like the guy and you're a 20 year old kid and then when you grow up to be a man you go boy that guy was not a good guy like period and that's you know i know other guys aren't going to say that it's been a long time but no, no reason to sugarcoat it either well, uh, you answered the next question that I was going to ask so i'm going to switch gears a little bit then and get into the fact that and you and I talked about this before we started recording. You transfer to Hofstra. Ben Watson leaves to go to Georgia. There were rumors yeah. that Chris Douglas, who was a very good running back and got to the NFL, yeah. was wanting to leave and maybe thought about going to Georgia yeah. too. You mentioned, and I'd forgotten this because, again, you know, I'm a parent now too, and I've, <laughs> you know, you, it's hard to remember everything. Yeah. But Richmond Flowers leaves to go to where? Middle Tennessee or something? Yeah, he went. He went to UT Chattanooga. Uh, Sean Johnson went to Delaware and was a draft pick. He was a draftable guy, and he was an All ACC guy. So to me, if I'm an alumni or I'm a, I'm a fundraiser, you know, if I'm if I'm a contributor to Duke financially at all, 
I'm going, what's going on here when you have an all ACC guy and an 0 and 10 team, 0 and 11 team transfer down? Like, you know, you, you know, you don't see a caliber of that player leaving very often. And it happened over and over and over. And Ben Patrick, another one, great tight end. Yeah, Ben Patrick went to Delaware. Josh Kreider was a starter at Stacey Forest. He went to Delaware. Um, it was, you know, it was not uh, – back then, that was pretty rare for guys to do that, but at Duke it wasn't. It happened all the time. What were the reasons for that? I mean, obviously you can tell us what your reason was, and I'd love yeah. to hear that. But well, yeah. What, what – Well, mine, mine had to do partly – like, and I, I'm not trying to throw Frank down to the bus here, but – so he fired my dad going into my senior year. And they had a big, they had a rough. It was obvious that it was a situation where one of them had to go. Obviously, Coach Frank isn't going to resign. So my dad can stay there. So he let my dad go, and it was a situation where it was just not a good, not a good dynamic going into my senior year. Where I, to be really, to be honest with you, I I wouldn't have put it past him to bench me uh, for no other for no reason, just to spite my dad. He's that kind of guy. And I, you know, I when my when I decided to transfer. I mean, he really he did some things that, like, took a, uh, so just so you know, like, at the lockers at Duke, they have your name up on them, right? You know, your your lockers, your name is on it. But when you're done with Duke, they take your name off of it and they put it in it. So every guy that ever wore 45 at Duke, their name is in my locker. And you go, it's pretty cool because Duke had down years, but you go back to the 30s and the 50s and 60s, they had a great program. So you're part of a good tradition. He took me, like, took me out of the, like, took me out of the, uh, the media guys, like the next year I'm looking at it, I go, what the hell, what the heck's going on? I'm not even in here. Like I was struck from being a captain. I wasn't on any record. My name was out of the locker. And I went and looked at, I went to meet him face to face. Hey, well, why are you doing this? this? You obviously, I had a different, you know, situation. And he, he didn't endorse me leaving, but Frank said first, like, hey, if you got to leave, I understand. As soon as I did, it was like, he, he tried to really, you know, do things where I'm like, man, 20 years from now, he's my friends for life. I go back and watch two games. I don't want it to be like one part of the program. You know? So my reason for leaving was obviously because my dad got fired. Um, but it wasn't just that. It was that I did not, I did not trust Frank to treat me fairly after he fired my dad. So what, what was the deal with, if you can talk about it, what was the deal between hey, your, your father and uh, the O-line coach there and, and, Coach Franks, what was the situation? He, to be honest, they just they didn't. My dad didn't like how, how sarcastic he was, and my dad is definitely not a guy to mince words. He he would get into it with them all the time, uh, in front, and it got to the point where they get into a little bit of verbal stuff uh, in front of kids, where it's just a bad. It was a bad dynamic, um, but my dad didn't like him, and Franks didn't like my dad. But my dad was more. My dad. Um, didn't like the way Frank uh, treated the kids is what it came down to. And he would be very vocal about it. And, you know, that's just the way it went. And then it kind of got to the point where they weren't recruiting. You know, Franks wouldn't really recruit the kids my dad wanted, where I'm like, my dad recruited Sean Johnson and Matt Zelensky and Kenny Stanford, who were kids. They used to, like, Franks would always make comments about Kenny Stanford. Kenny ended up being an all-ACC player on a really bad team. Um, so it got to where it just got really ugly. Is the easiest way to, to to put it in a very short sentence is it got ugly between Frank and my dad, and they didn't get along at all. Well, I was going to ask. Uh, I think you answered this next question. I was going to ask, uh, and you'll see why I'm laughing about it. Uh, so let me let me ask it a different way. It'll be a two part question. 
what were the biggest challenges that you felt that the football program experienced under Coach Goldsmith? And then the biggest challenge or challenge is that the program experienced under Coach Franks to the extent you haven't already answered that? Um, I would say under Goldsmith, it was a little more of, I feel like we had some good personnel that were played out. Like we didn't uh, utilize all our personnel would say, it would be what I would say with, with Goldsmith. I, you know, when I think back, we had Scotty and Richmond were two really good receivers. They're both kind of ACC caliber, all ACC caliber type guys. And then we had uh, one roster. We had Mike Hart, we had Nick Brzezinski, Ben Watson and Terrence Dupree. We had four great tight ends, but they were never like, I just feel like we didn't quite be able to utilize all that talent with, with Goldsmith. And then with Frank's, to be honest, I think the, the morale of the program just went into the toilet really quick. And I think he did a poor job recruiting. Like, uh, and I love that all the guys that played with, of course, I've never, you know, you're going to, you know, some guys just aren't going to have the talent, but there was a huge, huge drop off in level of talent. And I'm, there would always be four or five pretty darn good players in every class, but some of the, the last four or five guys that were signed in classes under Frank were, they weren't ACC caliber players, in my opinion, and they're nice guys. I, you know, it, I, I would never try and belittle anybody, but I think it, it got to that point where you, you're not offering, you're not recruiting the type of kid you have to to be competitive. Well, and, and you hit on this, but those Duke teams, looking back on it, had some talented players. Obviously, Scotty Montgomery, yeah. Richmond Flowers, Ben Erteljack, Ben Watson, Chris Combs, B.J. Hill, some other running backs, Mike Hart, a good collection of tight ends, including Dupree, you, Stallmeyer, uh, Lenny Friedman, Gannon Shepard, if I didn't say Chris Combs already, yeah. you know, he was there. And, of course, Sims Lenhart, probably yeah, sec- yeah. Yeah, second only to Ross Martin as far as uh, kicking excellence at Duke. I mean, you guys had some talent. What do you think was the reason that the win-loss record is what it was during that time period? Ah, man, I don't to be. I just can't. Uh, I can't really put my finger on. We just could never close. We could never quite close the. You know, we could never put the nail in the coffin. We would be in a tight game in the fourth quarter. I think someone with depth. Where they, I know ninety-nine the ninety-nine season. I think through four games, me and Ryan Stallmeyer, we played every we played every defensive snap. And you tackled and every like every uh, offensive player on the other team. It felt like, well, my memory of watching yeah. you guys, you were tackling everybody. Yeah. Well, and it's well, it's just it was, that was uh, we had no depth. Is, is what it, it ended up kind of biting us. Like I remember Combs. Combs used to eat like an animal that stay up at like three hundred pounds. And when you're playing, you're taking a ton of reps in practice. You're playing the whole game. By the third, fourth game, you're you're kind of just struggling to to stay healthy and, and be able to be competitive. Like you'd be down to 280, I'd be playing middle linebacker, 215, 220 pounds, and you're like just you know you get in the third, fourth quarter, you start to get start to get worn down a little bit. So I think that you know depth depth was definitely definitely an issue. And um, you know honestly, we had a hard time uh, um, move. Uh, I'm trying to think back. Really, protecting the quarterback, we we never had a lot of continuity at quarterback. Like I always felt like there was somebody different starting every other game, yep. and that makes it difficult too. There were, it was. We talked about this a little bit. Romine would be hurt. Campbell would be hurt. I mean, it was either a shoulder or an ankle or something, and yeah. it never felt like the offense could get in in a rhythm. And no, yeah, 
I, I do think also that the the ACC was really changing at that point in time, and Duke just wasn't keeping up with the changes. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's fair. Yeah, uh, but you guys, you guys played hard though. I mean, I've watched a lot of those games. I mean, I was a high school student, and I'd watch it with my dad, and I'd listen to him on the radio. You guys always, I felt like, played hard. And even that three and eight team, Frank's first year, I felt like you all played really, really hard, and you didn't quit. Yeah, but no, I thought I thought that team could have been, you know, I, like I said, that team was could have been six and five, seven and four, just as easy as we were three and eight. Just uh, you know, didn't you know lose the north? That was a killer. We lost. I remember. I, it's funny. I remember all these games, but we lost the Northwestern second game of the year in overtime. And they were not a good team. Where that was kind of a morale killer. Where you're like, dang, we just lost to a bad team. We played really well defensively, and we lost in overtime a game that we should, if we played them. Ten times we beat them nine, and uh, when you're a Duke, you you have to get that win. You can't lose that game. And once we lost that, it was like it was you know to pick yourself up every week is tough when you you lose tough ones like that. Do you think uh, that in, in the '99 season, which was your last one at Duke, if instead of trying to take Spurrier's Florida offense and run it without the Florida players? the offense had run maybe more traditional sets that the season could have gone a little bit differently? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, when you look at the year before, BJ had a great year running the ball. And like when I just went over all those tight ends we had, right? I'm like, man, we just had the personnel where you go too tight and, uh, you know, Scotty Richmond on the outside. And I'm like, man, I thought we were pretty, we were pretty, we could present a lot of challenges for teams. And, uh, I just felt like we tried to really throw the ball a, a lot more than we needed to. And it ended up putting a lot of pressure on the defense. I remember the first game that you played ECU, and it was like a nightmare. It was three and out, three and out, three and out. And I think Frank's first play of his career, this isn't telling, he had a, a, a delay of game on his first call where you're like, man, your first, your head coach for the first time, you don't have this scripted since, uh, since that was your, you know, you don't know the play you're going to run. First play of the game, first play of your career. We got to delay a game where you're like, you look back, you know, oh, boy, was that a bad time. So, and, you know. Yeah, the, I started watching that game, and that's how I got in touch with Ben uh, Erdeljack when he okay. put when he put all that stuff on YouTube, and I was able to track him down. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, and I was watching that, and I know David Garrard was there at ECU, who was a yeah. good quarterback then. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't get yeah. me wrong, I'm not knocking Garrard, but I was watching that game. And I could just see that the offense could not run that system. I think they called it air raid or something like that. Yeah, air, yeah, something like that. There was, I think that's what it was. And you're just like, we don't have, we don't have the personnel to protect them. We don't have, uh, we had some speed. You know, Ben was more of a possession type guy, and Scotty and Richmond were more outside guys. But we we would run, or practically we'd run four, like basically four goes. And one skinny post, I'm like, man, you gotta have like Florida's receivers to run this. We don't have Florida's receivers, and we don't have their depth. And it was like, it was trying to put a you know a square peg into a round hole a little bit, in my opinion. Yeah, you guys offensively started playing better when he put Romine back under center and yeah. got out of the scramble if nothing's open and you know throw deep every play. There was some improvement, yeah. but. By then, yeah. I mean, you left, Combs left, Scotty and Flowers left, Watson left. There were a lot of people who were gone. I think maybe that was Len Hart's last year. I can't remember. 
all the mm-hmm. all the guys who were real talented that had come in under Goldsmith were gone or were leaving. And then you talk about the bag just breaking. It yeah. got it yeah. got ugly fast. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it went downhill pretty quick. Well, let's turn away from that and ask about your happiest moment at Duke. Now that we've now that we've thoroughly depressed oh, yeah. all the listeners, reliving painful memories. Yeah. What, what what when you, what what was your happiest moment at Duke when you look back on it? Um, I mean, shoot, all the all the time just hanging out with guys, all those guys. I mean, I talked to every single one, not every single one, but you know, all my best friends are guys I met there play ball with. So me and Ben are close, and Mike Hart and Brian Abbott. I still talk to Stallmeyer and all of them. And, to me, I've met some great guys and talked to all guys at Duke. You know, uh, that's the one. I'm sure you go and you realize there's you, you get you get more of an element of some kids that are not great kids. You know, they're they're, they're kind of just. But we had a we had a couple thugs at Hofstra, mostly great guys, but we had a couple thugs. I think we didn't have many because they're all. They, you got to be able to. You know, you got to be a different kind of guy to go to Duke. You got to be able to to keep up academically and all that. So all the guys I met there are such quality guys that. I couldn't. I couldn't name one. There are a hundred great memories of that. But in terms of on the field, I'd probably say when we beat Virginia at Virginia, um, it was Frank's first year. That was a great win because you know I played at high school an hour away from there, and that was just we were zero and four, I think, or something, and definitely an underdog. And we went in, and they were a pretty decent team. I had Thomas Jones, a couple other good guys, and, and we beat them there. That was a good, good memory of, uh, of something on the field. Well. Um... We've talked about your pro experience, uh, and we talked about your time uh, as a firefighter. Why don't you tell us what you're doing now and what you've been up to of late? So now, like, I've been out of the fire department for, like, six, seven years, and I do a lot of fitness training now. So I do anything from uh, senior fitness. I actually, it's pretty pretty cool. I actually teach a senior's class now that my dad is a student. He comes and takes uh, a senior fitness class I teach. Um, and then I do a lot of training at just local athletes, but I started working with a group called Tip of the Spear, which I told you a little bit about earlier, and it's really, it's pretty refreshing because it's kind of a new approach to teaching contact. Um, and it's, it's, it's teaching kids how to use their hands, how to use their hips, their shoulders, and get their head out of contact. And the guy who started it, I was, I was starting to share with you, his name's Scott Peters. Um, he's the founder of the program. He played for seven years in the NFL. And the other guy I worked with, Mike Pollock, played for seven years in the NFL. So it's kind of former guys trying to trying to make the game better. Um, but Scott was hired. He never he would go do clinics. We do clinics all over the country. He would go do clinics for NFL teams, college teams, and then right down to youth program. So he got hired uh, by the Cleveland Browns as an assistant line coach, and they had a great year. And I, I attribute a lot of that. Their line was the number one rated. Uh, passing and running line in the, in the league, and they have three all-pros. Um, I don't think that's any coincidence. Scott Scott is an unbelievable teacher, and they had zero concussions. Everywhere he's gone where they've really adopted the program has seen a huge reduction or zero uh, concussion because of the way we teach the game. And it's, but Another thing that really is great about it is it's not soft. It's not soft football. It's, it's very physical, but it's, it's, there are better ways to teach it that that I didn't learn as a kid because it was, you know the head, the head contact stuff wasn't wasn't as big a deal, you know. But um, you know now I'm really I'm really proud to be involved with them and teach, teaching football the way I think is is going to be the wave of the future. Well, 
Well, that that's great to hear. And I found you through your Hall of Fame Solutions website. Yeah. Uh, uh, tell uh-huh. us tell us a little bit about that. And I, I'm I'm asking primarily because my son is a TRX addict. He's 12. Uh, okay. He does yeah, that so religiously we, every morning. Okay. Um, yeah, we do um, resistance bands. So me and my dad have a company where high schools and colleges some um, will will buy bands from us. We we do a lot of different programs um, using resistance bands. So. We do that, but then we do, you know, I've done a couple of youth camps. COVID has kind of knocked, knocked everything down a little bit in terms of the in-person stuff. And, but we've um, basically tried to be a, a fitness re- resource for people that aren't. Um, I kind of get away from looking like I end up having a shoulder replacement. Actually, I've already had my shoulder replaced. I'm, I had it replaced before I was 40. Wow. And, um, yeah, and I think it was a lot of how I trained. I was a big weightlifter, not necessarily the most mobile guy. Um, it was, you know, where... When I look back, I go, boy, I would have really changed the way I trained a little bit. I would have focused more on movement and not on numbers on the weight room board because those usually don't correlate anyway. <laughs> you know, I was a, at the peak of my strength. I was probably close to a 500, like a 475, 480-pound bencher. And you go, well, what? That, I never remember really pressing someone off me and being like, wow, that's my weight room strength. It doesn't, there's not a lot of crossover. Yeah, so that, got, you know, with the, with the Hall of Fame Solutions, we've just gotten much more into movement as opposed to, to just building muscle. That that surgery too is a big, big procedure. Um, and, yeah, it was it was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was not fun, but you know, I feel pretty good now. So how long? It is. You know, my my dad has a pretty bad knee, and he put off, uh, and he's been able to successfully put off having to have a knee replacement because he was worried about the life expectancy of it. I'm just curious uh, for the shoulder. What kind of time frame are you looking at? Are they going to have to do a revision? Yeah, or a- uh, it, it, it really depends who you ask. Like you know, you can talk to some people until you never do a push up again, and then you talk to some and go, you know what? Because I still have good muscle strength. I'm still pretty strong, and I'm still very active. But I haven't lifted weights in ten years, and I left the fire department because my shoulder got to a point where I couldn't couldn't sleep. I had trouble putting my air pack on, you know, it just got, and I pull, you know, I pull a ceiling or something, my shoulder go, go out. And, you know, I just had issues with it. Um, so I don't know, like knock on wood, I think now it feels really, really good. And I think if I'm smart about it, I should have it for the rest of my life. Um, you know, which I'm trying to be, I'm not obviously, you don't go out there and do hang cleans or snatches or something with an artificial joint. Um, but you know, I try and still train and I still strength train, but I'm use bands and stuff a lot of just trying to be real smart about it. Well, I, as we get to the closing part of the interview, uh, there's a couple of things that I'd like to ask you about. It sounds like you're still involved in some extent with the Duke program. Do you have any advice to people out there? athletes, high school kids who are thinking about coming to Duke, transfer students, what would you tell them about going to Duke and being a Blue Devil? I, I loved it. I would not, even with, you know, you kind of poke some uh, painful memories there, football. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't change a thing. I, the, the, the campus is gorgeous. It's a great education. Like you said, you're going to meet quality guys. All the guys you meet there are good guys. Um, I would, you know, my dad used to always give the advice uh, hey, go go where you go if you never played football. I would never tell a kid that. I'd say no, no, no. The first thing you got to think about is a football program because when you if you're you now we're talking athletes, obviously. Because you go, you know, I, I always tell my dad I'm like, boy, that's bad advice. Like, because football <laughs> is your life. When you go there, it is. It's it's forty hours of your time. 
So if you don't like the football program, it makes it pretty damn hard to love the school. Um, but I, even though I just said that, I, I love it. I, I, you know, it's, it's a great place. It's really special. And it's a, I would never tell a kid it's a mistake to go there at all. And, you, you, you know, you're going to have your down years in football. But you're also playing against the best in the country. You're going to play the Florida States and the Clemsons, and if you can do that, you know that's uh, you know you want to go against the best. You're still going to do that. Well, um, I looked uh, when I when I looked you up. I saw you have uh, you have a beautiful family, four girls. I sympathize with you trying to get to the shower uh, during the day. Wow, yeah. That's got to be a a rough battle for you. Uh, but but I do want to say you were. A hell of a lot of fun to watch at Duke. You and Ryan Stallmeyer were two of my favorite players from back in that era. You guys brought it on every single play. And look, the win-loss record may not have been what we as fans would have liked or what you as players would have liked, but you you guys really left it all on the field. I don't think you've got anything to hang your head about. Uh, again, you were just one heck of a special player, and I appreciate all you did as a Blue Devil. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. That was uh... – Bringing me up with Stallmeyer, he's a guy I always look, you know, he's a little older than me and loved playing next to him for a couple of years. It was great. So put me even my name with his is, makes me proud because he was a hell of a player. He, he was, and you were, and again, I, I really appreciate all you did uh, for the program, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us uh, today. Uh, I learned a lot from this, and I hope our, uh, our uh, listeners will as well. And uh, with that, I would just want to say thank you, Todd, for coming on the program, and thank you, everybody uh, who is listening. Uh, if you are a former player, coach, athlete associated with the program, shoot me an email uh, at bullcitycoordinators at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter uh, at Duke Football Coverage, and we look forward to many good interviews in the future.